We're continuing our study in the Catechism, and we are on the subject of baptism. And the, the subject is the subjects of baptism. <laughs> Who are the people that are to be baptized? Who are the subjects of baptism? And we'll be looking at Acts chapter 11. That's funny, my, my outline says uh, Acts chapter 1. Maybe yours does too. Uh, mine is different than yours, but it's supposed to be Acts 11, 1 through 18. So last week, we did look at baptism in a general way, at what it is. And we saw that in itself, baptism is a ceremonial washing of purification, a washing from defilement. It was common in the Old Testament as there were various uh, persons were sprinkled with clean water or sometimes water that was mixed with uh, hyssop and various things, kind of a soap-like thing, in, in, in preparation for approaching God in worship. There were many baptisms, as we're told, in Hebrews chapter 9. God had also, in the Old Testament, promised a day when he would, where, where he would bring a great baptism to his people, uh, a baptism that would be one that would be associated with the coming of the Holy Spirit and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on his people. Ezekiel spoke of that very clearly in Ezekiel chapter 36. We looked at that, that God would sprinkle clean water on them as a ceremonial cleansing. But in connection with that, that he would give them a new heart. He would take away the stony heart, that he would give them his spirit who would renew their heart. And of course, John the Baptist made that connection when he came baptizing, bringing that promised baptism. He said, I baptize you with water, but the one that's coming is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. What this New Testament baptism represents as the coming, the advent of Christ and the new covenant. So that was, again, prophesied in Ezekiel 36. We saw that in Mark 1, how Mark declares that John's baptism was the beginning of, of the gospel, the good news that would come at the end of that that age when Jesus Christ brought fulfillment to all of the promises that had been made. And so John the baptizer was there baptizing people when they repented, calling them to repentance and pointing them to the one who would change them and would cleanse them. John made it clear that it was he was not the one who baptized with the spirit His was just the baptism with clean water. It was the Lord who would do that. He said that the one that was coming that he was announcing was so great that he wasn't even worthy to loosen his sandal. Then we saw in the end of, well, then we saw Jesus who came and was baptized by John. And he was given the Holy Spirit in a visible way as the Christ, that word means the anointed one, it's the same as the word Messiah too, so that he could baptize us with the Holy Spirit. So the great baptism that the prophets had promised had begun. That was the beginning of the good news of God coming to cleanse his people through his son. Then we went to the end of Mark and we saw that Jesus, after his suffering death, burial and resurrection, commanded the gospel to be preached in his name to all of the nations, and that in going and preaching the gospel to those nations, that 
those who believed were to be baptized. Those who trusted in him to cleanse them were to receive the sign of God's promised cleansing. Everyone that enters the kingdom is to receive the ceremony of washing to show that no one comes into his kingdom without their sins being washed. You can't enter the kingdom of God apart from the cleansing that comes from Jesus Christ and from his spirit. And so it was, uh, uh, that was the, the calling that we have to carry the gospel to the nations and with baptism. This week we're going to look at which people are to receive baptism. Which ones are we to baptize? So this question 95 in the Shorter Catechism. So let's confess this question, the answer to this question together. Question 95, to whom is baptism to be administered? Baptism is not to be administered to any that are out of the visible church till they profess their faith in Christ in obedience to him. But the infants of such as are members of the visible church are to be baptized. Let me give you a few words of explanation. The visible church is the people that profess the true religion together with their children. That's the reason that baptism is only supposed to be administered to those who profess their faith in Christ in obedience to him. Because it is only for those who are, are, uh, who are his people, part of his church. Now that the church has come to, I mean, now that Christ has come to cleanse us from our sin and has been crucified for us, the true religion involves trusting in him and following him as our savior. Notice that it also says that the children of those who profess the true religion are to be baptized. Children as infants are not able to profess, so parents are allowed and expected to present their children to Jesus for cleansing and for baptism, which is the sign of Jesus cleansing. He can cleanse, he can give a new heart to those who are infants. He can work by his spirit in them. That's something that he does, you see. So uh, children that are not able to profess or then to come to di- or to be brought. Today I want to show you from Scripture that we are not to neglect the baptism of either those who profess their faith or their children. So our Scripture reading will be from Acts 11, and it's going to be verses 1 through 18. But I want to give you a little background before I read that to you. In this chapter, Acts 11, we have the Apostle Peter called into question. Okay, this is a good thing, isn't it? The church, the leaders in the church can call one another to say, what are you doing? Why did you do this? Even the Apostle Peter can be called to account in this way. And so they call him into question by the other apostles and the elders at Jerusalem for baptizing the Gentile household of Cornelius. Now, the Gentiles were simply, of course, the word Gentile is used to refer to the nations, goyim is a Hebrew word, and uh, there were people that were not of Israel, people from other nations. And as you know, God had promised all along that his son would be sent to the people of Israel, to the Jews, that they would be the one that would bring the Messiah into the world. 
people from Israel. And Jesus had confined his ministry to Israel when he was here. He didn't generally minister to the Gentiles very much. But as we saw last week, after he rose from the dead, there was something great change. He commanded the gospel to be preached to the goyim, to the nations, and that they should be baptized even. But up until Peter baptized Cornelius' household, only Jews had been baptized. There were some Gentiles who had converted to Judaism that were baptized, but the way that it was understood is you must first become a Jew and then you can be a Christian. Then you can be baptized. You can recognize the Messiah has come, but you have to first become a Jew. So it was a whole new thing for a Gentile household to be baptized that had not first been circumcised and become a part of Israel. As soon as the apostles and the brethren at Jerusalem heard that Peter had not only baptized the house of Cornelius, but had eaten with the Gentiles who ate unclean food, they were quite unsettled and disturbed about it. You see, the church had to had to learn the changes. It wasn't exactly wrong for them to be questioning this. They, they had not learned yet about it, and it takes time for the changes to, to sink in. It's understandable because it was an entirely new thing. They needed to be able to work through it together, and so they, they have, that's why we have presbyteries and, and assemblies in the church so that the presbyters could come together and say, Peter, what are you doing and could evaluate whether this is something that ought to be done or not. And here in Acts 11, we have Peter explaining and defending why he was compelled. He felt constrained to baptize these Gentiles. He felt that he was compelled by the Lord to do so. Although this remained a controversial matter in the church during the days of the apostles, the official response of the church was to accept what Peter had done. To say, yes, Peter, you did do the right thing. We affirm what you did. We agree that this is what ought to be done in the future. And they were right to do that. That's what they were do here in Acts 11. They say, yes, this is right for these uncircumcised Gentiles and their children to be baptized. In Acts 15, then representatives from the whole church gathered to speak about this again because everybody still wasn't settled about it. And at that synod, they reaffirmed that the Gentiles do not have to be circumcised before they can be baptized and received as members of the visible church and partake of the Lord's Supper. They must only profess faith and obedience to him, and then they and their households are to be baptized. So listen now as I read to you from Acts chapter 11, where Peter presents his defense for baptizing this uncircumcised household. Give careful attention because this is the word of God. Acts 11 verse 1. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him saying, you went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now understand what's going on here. Just say a few comments here as we read through this. Understand that in the Old Testament, there were food laws that God gave to Israel to to separate them, to keep them apart as God's people. 
separate from the other nations. He deliberately wanted them to be separate from the other nations. That was the purpose. That's why they're complaining at Peter because you're eating with Gentiles and they don't eat the, the, the foods that are ceremonially clean. You, you, become, you defile yourself in this way, Peter. And you remember Peter, he thought he would defile himself too before he had this vision that he describes here. He says, it says, verse 4, But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying. Remember, he was up on a roof. And he said, And in a trance I saw a vision. An object descending like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. Peter must have thought that God was testing him, you know, like saying, Here, Peter, do that. And he was like, No. It's like the Rakbites when they had made a vow that they wouldn't have wine. And then Lord, the prophet came and said, here, drink. And they, they refused because they, they had made a vow. Verse 9. But the voice answered me again from heaven. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Now this was done three times and all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment... Three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. So God had been giving another man a, a vision and to send his servants to come and meet Peter. Verse 12, then the spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me and we entered the man's house. So Peter had uh, six other Christians that were with him who were, of course, Jews that were, were believers in Christ. Peter was only doing what he had been told to do then by the Lord when he went to eat with these Gentiles. He said, like, I, this was directly told me by the Lord. Verse 13, and, and it says, And he, talking about Cornelius, told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak... Peter's talking now, as I began to speak, he says, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Now, when the Spirit first came, you remember that the Spirit came in a, a, a way that you could see, that you could discern visibly, like there were tongues of visible tongues of fire. There was a mighty rushing wind and there were miracles that were done where the people were able to speak in languages that they had never learned and to praise God when there were a bunch of foreigners there. It wasn't unknown languages. It was languages that people said, wow, they're praising God eloquently in my language. They don't even know my language. So uh, when the Spirit first came, His coming was made visible with outward signs. And, uh, and, and then we have in verse 16, he said, Peter says, then I remembered, okay, when he saw this, he says, then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water and you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So he thought, OK, we have the symbol of baptism that represents the baptism of the spirit. These people have actually been baptized with the spirit. Verse 17, he says, if, therefore, God gave them the same gift as he gave us, the gift of the Spirit, 
when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? In other words, if they have what is symbolized by baptism, how can I withhold baptism from them? That's what he says. When they heard, and, and, and then, okay, so he says, how could I withstand God? Then verse 18, when they, the council that Peter was talking about, the presbytery, the ones he was talking to, when they heard these things, they became silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life. So they accepted what Peter had done as legitimate. If the Gentiles received baptism with the Spirit, should they not also receive baptism with water? Should the ceremony that represents the thing signified not be given to those who have the real deal? Oh, there we'll end that reading of God's word. May he bless it. So do you see the principles here? Principle here. Everyone who has received God's salvation in Christ ought to be baptized. If they have cleansing by the Holy Spirit, they ought to have the sign of cleansing, baptism, on their body. This is, this is Peter's argument here. He points out that God's spirit was given to these Gentiles when he preached the gospel to them. Again, verse 15. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. It's explained in the previous chapter what happened where Peter's just recounting what happened in chapter 11. Back in chapter 10, verse 45, uh, Peter and his companions could actually see that the Spirit was given to these Gentiles because God did send that outward indication of the coming of the Spirit. In 10.45, it says, And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter, those six men that he told about, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with other tongues and magnify God. So they said, wow, what happened to us happened to them. God made the coming of the Spirit evident in this way. Whenever the Spirit was given to a new people group, okay? Uh, Who was the first people group that it was given to? It was Jews. And at Pentecost, when the Spirit was first poured out, God made it visible with signs and miracles to show that they had received the Holy Spirit. Okay, so this is what Peter is talking about when he says that the Spirit came on them as it came on us at first. Then, The outward signs were given when the Samaritans received God's salvation. Because the Samaritans, can they really be Christians? They're Samaritans, right? And the Jews, don't they have to become Jews, full Jews, because they're kind of halfway Christian, halfway Jews. How could they they then receive the blessing? Well, it might have been questioned, but God gave the signs when the gospel was preached and they believed to show that, yeah, they received the Spirit too. He made it visible. And now you see, you've gone to a third kind of people, a third people group, which is the Gentiles. And the outward signs of the Spirit were given when these Gentiles, Cornelius and his household, his friends as well, received the Spirit to make it obvious to all that they had been baptized with the Holy Spirit. As Peter goes on with his argument, in Acts eleven sixteen, he explains that when the Spirit came, 
it immediately made him think of what the Lord had said through John the Baptist. John baptized with water, but Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus gives the true cleansing of heart represented by baptism. Well, Peter explains how this led him to baptize them in Acts 17, in Acts eleven seventeen. If God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we were believed, how could I withstand God? How could I not give them the sign when God had given them the thing? If you look back in Acts 10 again, you can see what Peter actually said at the time. In Acts 10, 47, he says, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And none of the six brethren that were with him objected to that. Third, of course, or, or I'm sorry, this, this, of course, only makes sense. If God appointed the symbol of baptism to represent cleansing that he promises to give those who believe, then it would be to resist God to refuse to give the sign to those who God had cleansed by Christ. But there's one difficulty in applying this. Peter was able to see that they received the Holy Spirit because God gave these signs and showed everyone that they had received the Spirit. They praised God with languages that they did not know. That's what convinced Peter to baptize them. But God doesn't give us these signs today. There are some people who pretend to have these signs, but they don't speak in real languages that they don't know. They just speak gibberish and call it tongues of angels. It's always tongues of angels. They never speak languages that people around them know. It's always these unknown languages that they claim to speak. Remember that Peter was in a very different situation. A very different situation. He and all the rest of the Jews who believed did not think that the Gentiles could receive the Holy Spirit until they had first been circumcised and become Jews. And that salvation could not be theirs until they became a Jew first. That's why God gave that outward signs of the Spirit, the outward signs of the Spirit to these Gentiles before baptism. It was a way to make it clear that Gentiles really could receive the Holy Spirit. Remember, at Pentecost, it was the other way around. The signs were given after they were baptized. Here, it was given before they were baptized. But after this was proven, okay, that Gentiles could receive the Holy Spirit, then the signs were no longer needed as soon as they believed before baptizing them. You see, once it had been shown that the Spirit had been given to Gentiles or to Samaritans or to Jews, whichever the case may be, as soon as it was shown that the Spirit was given to them when they believed, it indicated that Gentiles, whenever they profess faith in Christ, are to be baptized, both they and their children, because God's promise of the Spirit is, as Peter said in Acts 2, to you and to your children. So Peter was talking about the promise of cleansing, both of cleansing of forgiveness from guilt. We need to be cleansed on our record of wrongs that we've done and the cleansing of the, the new heart that baptism especially points to the Holy Spirit giving us a new heart. So as soon as someone believes, they and their children are to be baptized because as soon as they believe, they have been cleansed by Jesus and his spirit. They have the thing promised unless they're lying about believing. 
and that means that they ought to have the sign. How can we refuse to give the sign of cleansing if God has cleansed them? Now, learn from this that those who profess faith ought to be baptized right away. This has often been a problem in the church. The pattern of baptism without delay is clearly established in the New Testament. Remember, we're to follow the example of the apostles, not the traditions of men, because they were doing what Christ had commanded them to do. What they do is given to us as a pattern to be followed. We are not to follow the traditions of men, but we're to follow the traditions of the apostles because these are the traditions that God has revealed to us in his word. Now, there are many examples of immediate baptism. First, I would point you to, the, to our text. As soon as Peter saw that they had received the Spirit, as he preached the gospel to them, he immediately baptized them. Second, I would point you to the example of Pentecost. There again, Peter is preaching and some of the Jews believed. We are told that those who gladly received the word were baptized that very day. 3,000 of them were baptized the same day. Third, we have examples of individuals. We have the Ethiopian eunuch. We have Paul, his conversion. We have Lydia and her household. We have the Philippian jailer and his household. All of them were baptized immediately, even though we're not told of any of them receiving the outward signs of the Spirit. They and their household, if they had a household, were baptized upon profession of faith. Now, a profession has to be examined, and sometimes there may be a delay if a profession is not clear, as it sometimes is in our day, that someone, they really are, do they really understand the gospel? And we have to sometimes have a, a delay for that reason. We also, I think it is appropriate when we have settled churches, there is a difference between a missionary baptism and a settled church, because in a missionary baptism, you're out and about going to form a new church. There's not elders already in place that are Christian elders and that sort of thing. So you baptize, Paul baptized people himself, the first converts, like he said he did at Corinth. But then after the church is established there, Paul says, I don't baptize them anymore. He leaves it to the local leadership. So they, as a session, would examine people and then baptize them. So they're a little bit of a, a little bit of a process, but no call for a lengthy process when it's clear that someone has believed. So it's important to see this because today churches often put baptism off. They do not seem to recognize that as soon as someone comes to Christ, they should be baptized. So this is, uh, this is important to, to keep in mind. Um, in such cases, there is when, when there is an unclear profession, there's reason to delay, but otherwise we should, uh, we should go ahead. Once, they, once a person professes and a person can have a clear profession immediately, then they should be given the sign. Can, a question again in 1047, can any forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Bring the water and baptize them. Our Lord has reason for wanting us to baptize people as soon as there is a credible profession of faith in Christ and obedience to him. First of all, he wants to make it clear that nobody enters his kingdom without first being cleansed. 
Sinners cannot come in until they are born again and have the atoning blood of Christ applied to them for forgiveness. To wait to baptize someone for months or even years removes the symbol from its proper connection with entering into the kingdom of God. It makes it look like a person can enter the kingdom of God without being washed by Christ or born again of his spirit. And you can't. A second reason that Christ does not want baptism to be delayed is for the encouragement of the one who is baptized. He wants them to know that as soon as they came to him for cleansing, he cleanses them. He doesn't put them off and wait to see if they're going to continue or not. He does not put them off and tell them to wait until they have fulfilled a period of probation, of testing. You have to be tested first, and then we'll see. If, then we'll baptize you. What, what are they supposed to be doing during that period? Are they supposed to cleanse themselves in preparation for being cleansed by him? Am I supposed to try to cleanse myself because he's not cleansed me yet? I have to wait. Then, of course, that's not what people would say, but it's a, it's a misrepresentation. It removes the sign from the work of God. The message of the gospel is that we cannot cleanse ourselves. That's why we come to him saying, Lord, cleanse me, wash me, or I die. Right? We have to, we, we have to be uh, earnest with that. The new believer needs this sign as an encouragement. It's God's seal and testimony to him that because he has come to Christ, he is cleansed. God clearly and dearly, God dearly loves us. He wants to comfort us with the sign of cleansing in his sight right from the start. So hopefully that is a corrective for those who would put off baptism of those who profess faith in Christ and obedience to him. Now we need to turn to look at the baptism of infants of believers. This is another category of persons that the churches often withhold baptism from. There is a reason for this neglect, and that is that the infant children of believers cannot tell us whether or not they believe. And besides that, they are not yet capable of understanding what Christ has done for them. A newborn baby can't understand. You can't, you can't understand language yet what God has done to save sinners. So they cannot have faith such as, re, as would be required of adults. But I want to show you from God's word that the infant children of believers are to be baptized. The pattern in scripture is that households were baptized when they believed. In every New Testament example, where there is a household, the whole household is baptized. We have not one example in the New Testament of a child growing up in a believing household and then being baptized. We have rather examples of a whole household being baptized when they come irregardless of age. So it was the case with Cornelius, whom we just read about. If you look back in Acts 10.24, we're told that Cornelius had gathered not only his immediate household, probably including servants, of which he had not a few, but also his relatives and close friends. They are referred to as many who had come together in Acts 10.27. There's little doubt that in a large household, together with other households and servants, that there are some children of all ages that were present. It would be kind of like our group here. You have people of all ages 
And in Acts eleven fourteen, Peter explains how the angel had told Cornelius to send for Peter and that Peter would tell him how not just you, but you and your household will be saved. That's the language that we have all through the Bible going back in the Old Testament where children were part of the covenant. He did not say you and your household except children, but you and your household. And since the children were not accepted of old, they were not to be accepted now. We have no reason to think that the youngest children were excluded from the salvation of Cornelius' household, especially since God had always blessed believers and their children together. There are other examples where we're told directly that the whole household was baptized. I mentioned some of these already in Acts 16, 15. Lydia and her household were baptized. In 1 Corinthians 1, 16, Paul mentions that he baptized the household of Stephanus. And in Acts 16, 33, after telling the Philippian jailer to believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, added to that, you and your household. In verse 31, we're told that he and all his were baptized. If we look at the Old Testament, we see very plainly that those who could not speak for themselves are included with their parents as part of the believing household. When God promises to be Abraham's God in Genesis 17, he also promises to be God to his descendants. And then God deliberately marks them out at eight days old. When he gives Abraham the Old Testament sign of cleansing, circumcision, God talks about circumcising the hearts of his people. He tells Abraham to circumcise the flesh of his sons on the eighth day. And he tells them that this is the sign of the covenant between him and them. The sign that he is their God and that they too are his people. Now, just as Jesus surmises that God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, So we are warranted to surmise that God is not the God of sinners that have not been cleansed. When he says, these are my people, then they are cleansed. If he is their God, it means he has surely cleansed them. He is not the God of those who are not cleansed of their sins in the way that he describes being their God in the covenant. So the very fact that he gave infants the seal of righteousness of faith, Romans 4.11 is what circumcision is called, before they could believe, proves that he cleanses them. If he did this in the Old Testament, why should we think that he ceased to do it in the New Testament? This is the day of the great cleansing that God has promised by the outpouring of his spirit in in great profusion upon his people. So now the Messiah has come and the promises of God are yea and amen in him. Let me show you then how the Bible teaches that children are to be baptized for the same reason that Cornelius' household was to be baptized. Children are to be given this sign because they have the thing signified. That's why Cornelius' household was baptized, right? Because they had the, the, there was evidence that they had this thing signified. In just a minute, I'm going to show you that the children do have the cleansing signified by baptism, even as infants. But first, I want to establish the point. Do you not agree that if children have the washing that is represented by baptism, that they ought to have the sign of baptism? This is no different than it was for the household of Cornelius, is it? The argument was, if they have received the Holy Spirit as uncircumcised Gentiles, then they ought to be given the sign of cleansing by the Spirit as uncircumcised Gentiles. 
That was the argument that Peter presented to the elder, elders, and that was the argument that stood before the elders. Some would object that it is different with children because many children of believers grow up to reject the faith. That proves that not all of them are cleansed by Christ in infancy. And indeed it does. I completely agree. But I would point out that there are a lot of adults who are baptized by a clear profession of faith who also reject Christ later on. And there's no warrant for waiting to baptize them when God has said, these are the people that I want you to baptize. We don't say, well, we've got to wait and make sure that they're really going to continue for years and years and years. I mean, maybe we should wait till people are on their deathbed. Does that mean we should wait to baptize them until they can prove to us that they have been cleansed? We, We have already seen that the answer to that is no. They're to be baptized right away. If they prove to be false, we deal with that then. There are ways to deal with it. Simon Magnus was baptized. He proved to be false the very day he was baptized. And they dealt with him. But if God says that he accepts the children of believers and cleanses them in the same way that he says that he accepts professing believers and cleanses them, then we ought to accept them as God's people until they prove otherwise until they show that they don't have new life. Not all professing believers are true believers, just as not all children of professing believers are true believers, but are, tr- are truly saved, I should say. But if God calls them his people, who are we to say that they're not? And when, we, when they die, we trust that they go to heaven if they die in infancy. And if they're his people, who are we to withhold water that these should not be baptized? Now, let me show you from Scripture that the children of believers, even infant children, are given the things that are signified in baptism. In other words, can children actually have the salvation that I've spoken about? Yes, they can. First, we see this in that God has promised the Spirit to them. Remember, the giving of the Spirit was the thing that convinced Peter that the Gentiles should be baptized. So if children can be given the Spirit, then they ought to be baptized too. In Acts 2, 38 and 39, when Peter is preaching the gospel for the first time after Jesus had ascended into heaven, after the Spirit had been poured out, which happened when he ascended, then he tells the Jewish hearers who had always received God's benefits along with their children that the promise is to you and to your children. That's what he said. The promise is to you. The promise of what? The promise of the Spirit. You can see that in verse 39. What are the particular promise that is in view here? Look at the context. It's the Holy Spirit and cleansing from sin by the Spirit. Verse 38. Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is to you and to your children. If the children of those who believe are promised the Holy Spirit along with their parents, who can forbid water? That these should not be baptized. Secondly, we see that Jesus says that the kingdom of God belongs to the infant children of believers. Now, I'd have you know that anyone who is in God's kingdom has been cleansed by Jesus before they came in. Children are born in sin, so we... We all are born in sin, 
And unless they are cleansed, they cannot be in God's kingdom. No one comes into the kingdom unless they're cleansed. So if we find the children are indeed in God's kingdom, and Jesus says that they are, that means that children can and are cleansed by Jesus and by the Spirit. In Luke 18, 15 through 16, Luke tells us that infants were brought to Jesus and that Jesus said that the kingdom of God was theirs. I've chosen Luke's account because he uses a word that actually technically means infants. Some of the other gospels just say children. Luke 18, 15 to 16. Then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Who can withhold the sign that God gives to all who enter his kingdom from those whom he says are part of his kingdom? The kingdom that Jesus said no one can be part of unless they are born of the Spirit. No one can enter this kingdom unless they're born of the Spirit. These little infants are part of the kingdom. So therefore, they can be given the Holy Spirit. If they are baptized with the Spirit, they should be baptized with water. Third, we are told in Scripture that the children of believers are holy. While in contrast, the children of unbelievers are unholy. Unclean, it actually says. In Scripture, something that is holy can be brought before God, while something that is unclean cannot be brought before God. Professing Christians are said to be holy because they have been cleansed by Christ and by His Spirit. They are called saints, which is the same root word as holy. It means holy ones. You can translate it. It's from the root word for holy in Greek. In 1 Corinthians 7, 14, Paul tells believers that even if their spouse is an unbeliever, their children are considered holy. He says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving children, I mean, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But now they are holy. So in other words, he's saying, if they were not, if the house was not sanctified, if there's not a believer in the house, the house is a house is sanctified to God, then the children would be unclean. If it was just the individual that was sanctified and not the individual in their house. So as you can see here, a great contrast is made between the children of unbelievers and the children of believers. The children of unbelievers are said to be unclean and so not accepted of God. Whereas the children of believers are said to be holy and so accepted of God. It is such a significant difference that Paul is actually saying here that if marriage to an unbeliever meant that the household was not holy, but only the individual because the, the unbeliever made the house unholy rather than holy, then he's saying it'd be a reason to divorce that unbelieving spouse, to get, get out of that marriage. You don't want to be in a situation where your children are cut off from God because you're married to an unbeliever. It would mean that the children were rejected instead of accepted if they were not holy. And if children are holy, then they ought to be given the sign of those who are holy. 
who have been cleansed from their sin? Who can withhold water that these should not be baptized who are declared by God in his word to be holy? There is much more that could be said about this subject. I have dedicated entire sermons to infant baptism in the past, but as this is just an overview, I don't want to overload with too many details. Maybe I've already done that. But the main point is that the children of believers have the things that baptism represents and that they have the thing that if they have the thing that baptism represents, then they ought to have the baptism. We know that they have what baptism represents because God tells us that they do. Who are we then to withhold water that these should not be baptized? Now, why is it important to baptize infants? It's important because it teaches us that children must be cleansed just as we must. Children are not innocent before God. That's a deception. The Bible teaches very plainly that we're born in sin and even conceived in sin. In Matthew 15, I mean in Psalm 51, David says, "In sin my mother conceived me." He doesn't mean that she sinned that she had him out of wedlock or something like that or by adultery or whatever, he means that he was born with a sinful nature. We all are. And baptism shows that we need to be cleansed from day one. We all have this twisted nature of Adam that makes us doubt God and rebel against him. We are born in sin and we must be born again in Christ, the last Adam. You see, with Adam, we have sin. With Christ, we have cleansing and the forgiveness of sin. What's more, the baptism of our children sets before parents that they need to bring their children to Jesus for cleansing. It makes parents realize that. The children can't speak for themselves, so the children are to speak for them and intercede for them, pleading with the Lord to cleanse their child. The way parents do that is by bringing their children to be baptized joining their prayers. Lord, cleanse my child. By ordaining that children should be baptized, the Lord graciously shows us that he does cleanse them. He gives parents in the church this visible pledge that he cleanses them when we bring them to to him. What a wonderful savior he is, for he might have excluded them. They don't deserve to be saved. Of course not. No one deserves to be saved. They deserve to be condemned. But he has included them with us as believing parents. And a third reason that it's important for children to be baptized is for the sake of the child himself. From their earliest days, we are to teach our children to look to Christ crucified for forgiveness and to look to the Holy Spirit to cleanse their hearts. Let me urge you not to neglect that with your children. Whenever they sin, it's an opportunity to show them that they have sinned against God and that they need to repent of their sin and look to Jesus Christ to cleanse them. Look to Jesus Christ for forgiveness through his blood shed on the cross and look to Jesus Christ for the giving of his spirit to change them so that they won't keep on sinning in that way. They, they need to be brought to Jesus again and again. If your children don't grow up with that knowledge, what are they looking to? Just God's general benevolence or that they're good people that have good enough works for God? They need to know that, 
that Christ is the only Savior. We are to tell them that they have been baptized with water and that Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. We are to tell them that we have entrusted them to Jesus for their cleansing from sin and that they are to look to Jesus themselves and to take comfort in the fact that they belong to him and to see to it that they do follow him with all their heart and that they never rely on their own efforts for salvation. That is so common that we find that people rely, they grow up in the church and they rely on their own effort for salvation. They have the sign of God's cleansing given to them because only he can cleanse them. And they are to rest in him who does the cleansing as long as they live. Oh, brothers and sisters, what a wonderful, gracious Savior we have. He delights in assuring us that he cleanses us and our children from sin. Let us not only obey him by receiving the sign for ourselves and for our children, but let us rejoice in receiving it. It is a great sin to neglect this sign. Too often I find that unbelievers do not recognize that it is... I'm I'm sorry, not unbelievers. Too often I, I find that believers do not recognize when it comes to baptism that it's just as wrong to do something that God forbids as it is to do something that, to, to refuse to do something that he has commanded. In other words, if you're supposed to baptize your children and you don't, that is a problem just as much as if you were forbidden to do it and you did it anyway. They would never think of, uh, such, such believers would never think of stealing, but they have no qualms about refusing to tithe, you see. Oh, well, I wouldn't do something like steal, but... I'm not going to do what God has asked me to do either with my wealth. Actually, Malachi says that is stealing. So it is with baptism. They would never think of bowing to an image of Christ or or something like that, but they act as if it's no great matter if they neglect baptism when God has commanded it. Baptism should be gladly received, just as it was by the believers and their children at Pentecost. It is a pledge to us from God of his unfathomable love in Christ to think that sinners like us and our children could be forgiven. Just to think that this is what is being set forth. God has included these little ones with us. Who but the mighty son of God could do this? Who but the Holy Spirit can cleanse not only us, but also our children? Who can forbid water that these should not be baptized? Please stand and let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you have given us cleansing. You have given us cleansing by Jesus Christ and by his spirit as your people. You have called us to come to you and to be saved. And that means to be cleansed from our sins, to be forgiven and pardoned, to be given a new heart that, of obedience by the working of your spirit and to be sanctified by him. Truly, Lord, we need your cleansing. We cannot be saved without your cleansing, for your salvation is this cleansing. And we thank you that along with cleansing, you have given us a sign of cleansing. And you have appointed that that sign be given to all those who are cleansed. And we know that we cannot see the heart of people to know whether they really believe or not when they say they do. 
but you have instructed us to baptize them when they profess to be trusting in Jesus and to baptize their children with those who profess when they profess the Lord Jesus or when those children are born after they have professed, after the parents have professed. We pray, Father, that we would do this diligently and gladly with rejoicing that you have been so kind that truly, Lord, you could have told us that our children were cut off and that they were excluded until such time as they grow up and they come and profess Jesus for themselves. But we thank you that you have told us no such thing, that in your grace and mercy, and Father, you're no way obligated to to have such grace and mercy. It is mercy. It's something that children don't deserve that we don't deserve. But in your grace and mercy, you have included them with us if we believe and you have included our children and you have designated them as holy and you have said that the kingdom of God belongs to them. So, Father, we are very thankful for this and we ask you that we would be faithful in bringing our children up as those who have cleansing by Christ, not as those who have righteousness by their works or because they're good people, or because they repent of their sins, but those who have cleansing because they repent of their sins and believe in Christ, because they lean on Him for forgiveness and for cleansing that only He can give. Oh, Father, help us to be faithful in setting the gospel before our little ones and before one another as well. May we receive this gospel with delight For, Lord, we will become grumpy sort of Christians, half-hearted sort of Christians, not even real Christians, if we do not rest in Jesus Christ as our Savior and the one who forgives our sins by his blood. We will be a people who will not serve you. We will not serve you well at all. But we thank you that when we have a robust faith and joy, in our Lord and his cleansing of us, then we are debtors to you, Lord, to give our lives for you. We talked about this even last week when we looked at baptism. May it be so. May it be true of us, Lord. We are a people who are identified as cleansed sinners, cleansed by Christ and his spirit. We're not identified as people who are righteous in our own works. We're identified as wretched sinners who have been cleansed by Christ. And we're very thankful that he does the cleansing because we cannot cleanse ourselves. We cannot be holy apart from Christ and his work. We praise you, Lord, for what you have done and how you have represented it to us with baptism. We praise you in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Now I want to sing Psalm 103 to us. Receive then, you who are trusting in him, receive the blessing of the Lord. May the Lord give you increase more and more, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. Amen.